Amen. And what a great song, celebration. God Almighty have come to live among us and die for us and ultimately rose again victorious over sin and death for us. What a great gospel of grace. Well, as you can see, Brother John is not here this morning. We first want to mention him in prayer and lift him up. It seems like he's got what's been going around rampant in our church this morning, so he's home. I know that he'd much rather be here, believe me. But I'm here this morning, and I'd like to share with you a passage from Philippians. So if you'll go ahead, and if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we'll start looking at it around verse 19. All right, and as we look at this epistle, and really any time we look at the book of Philippians, I think it's very healthy for us to remember uh, where Paul is when he's writing this. It's often called the epistle of joy, and for good reason. Uh, the joy just emanates all through this, the joy that transcends any temporary circumstance that Paul is experiencing. And uh, even in the midst of him being in Roman prison, being locked up for the cause of Christ, not really knowing what's going to happen to him, not knowing whether he's going to be released or whether his life will be ended there in Rome, uh, Paul writes this letter in this context. And he also writes this in this particular passage we're looking at this morning, in spite of the, the suffering that he's, he's been doing and in spite of the troublemakers in the church that uh, he's just mentioned in the previous section right before this. Uh, he says, in spite of these people, in spite of all the envy and strife and, and this sort of thing, the gospel of Christ was still advancing. And this, if nothing else, was a source of great joy for Paul. He really took good joy in the fact that uh, Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. Now, there are always troublemakers. Always troublemakers, uh, those that would sow disunity or discord in the church. It's unfortunate. Uh, there are always those that uh, would do this for self-gratification or self-glorification and not to glorify the Father. And make no mistake, these individuals that, that do this, I think they find themselves under the influence of Satan. You know, if Satan can't attack the church from without, he, he often tries to attack the church from within. We saw this in the example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. God set his standard, and his, uh, he, he made known his uh, priority of keeping the church pure by eliminating those church members. And uh, I think it's good for all of us as Christians to always be guarded. Guard our hearts from this sort of uh, influence. Uh, guard our hearts from this sort of disunity. And, and if we find ourselves in that, in that state, we, we ought to repent of that and confess our sins and, and flee to, to Jesus. You know, it's the same way all the way back here in Paul's day. It, things really haven't changed from then till now. We, we see some of the same things. And Paul says, in spite of this, in spite of these troublemakers, in spite of these men that were preaching uh, against him out of envy and strife, he could still say that in this, I rejoice. He says, I rejoice. Because, uh, as it says there in verse leading up to verse 19, Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, 
Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. And that's really where we'll pick it up this morning. Uh, He's carrying on the same idea, whereas before it was whether the cause of Christ was being uh, uh, advanced even in the midst of strife and envy, so as it is the case here, the cause of Christ is being advanced even by his life or through his death. In either case, he took joy in this. The most important thing for Paul was that Christ would be exalted. It really should go for all of us. Now, Paul was confident uh, that his present circumstances would turn out for his deliverance. That's what he says. Uh, the King James uses the word salvation here, and it's really, really a case where it's better, uh, puts things better perspective. But it's because the Greek word is actually soteria, and it's uh, commonly rendered as salvation. In fact, it's where we get the t- technical term in theology of soteriology, the study of salvation. Uh, Paul wasn't saying that he'd be saved necessarily from physical harm. He wasn't saved or delivered from this particular set of physical circumstances so much as he was focusing on his eternal and spiritual salvation. And that's what he took joy in. And he could, he could know that no matter what happened, that uh, he had that to look forward to. Paul knew that his present circumstances were only temporary. He could declare the same thing that Job had done in Job chapter 19 where he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. Paul had the joy of ministry in spite of suffering, in spite of these troublemakers, in spite of even the potential of death, as long as Christ was exalted. Now, again, here's another example of the King James having uh, a word that's uh, more interesting to me in their translation. It it uses, instead of the word exalted, it uses the word magnified. And uh, that's what I want to look at first this morning, Christ magnified. Now, here's the question. Does Christ, does Jesus Christ need to be magnified? Uh, Is there anything uh, that we as humans can do to magnify the Son of God, the God Almighty, Yahweh, that was just sung about, God with us. Can we do anything from a human standpoint to make him any greater than he already is? Well, here's an example of how to think about this. And that's why I like the word magnify here. It's the difference between magnifying in a telescope versus a microscope. Okay, In a microscope, and in fact, both instruments do magnify, but in a microscope... It's designed to take things that are very small, things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see with the naked eye, and it magnifies them by making them larger than what they actually are in order for us to have a better uh, picture of what's going on at the microscopic level. Okay? Now, this is not what we do when we, when we magnify the Lord. We don't make him any bigger than what he already is. On the other hand, a telescope, it magnifies as well, but it's taking things that are vastly bigger than we are. Okay? Uh, stars and planets and constellations and galaxies, these things that are millions of times bigger than you and I, and uh, it brings them closer to us through its magnification so that we might be able to see better. And this is the idea that we, we look at when we talk about magnifying Christ. Right? Uh, the believer is to be a telescope that brings Jesus close to other people. 
Now, to the average person, Christ is maybe a, a misty figure that uh, may or may not have lived a couple thousand years ago. But as the unsaved watch the believer, okay, and they watch us in our lives, and as we work on our salvation in our lives, as we go through crises, for example, as Paul is here, as the unbelievers watch us, they can see Jesus magnified in our lives and brought much closer to them. So the question becomes, is Christ being magnified in your life? Can people look at you and see Christ? Does that idea make you uh, a little humbled, scary? Natural follow-up that if Christ is magnified in your life to other people, what does that say? What are they seeing of Christ in you? Now, sometimes we take for granted the the vast amount of resources that we have as Christians, especially those of us who grew up in a Christian home, those of us who were born in the Bible Belt uh, here in Arkansas, those of us who, by the grace of God, were born here in America. We often take for granted the resources that we have available to us. But whether you work in Valonia or whether you work in Little Rock or, or wherever, you, you work or you interact with people, you'll always find people who don't have the same background as we do, the same access to the things of God that you and I have. We take it for granted. Now, you might be the only light that's shining in a very dark area of work or even an extended part of your family. So the first question is, do they know you're a Christian? Do they even know you're a Christian? And is it because... Uh, something you've told them? Is it because you casually mentioned it? Or is it because of your actions? Can they see Christ in you? But here's the bigger question. If they do, if, if they see that you're a Christian by whether you tell them or their actions, uh, if they know that you're a Christian on at least some level, what do they know about Christ through your example? What do they know about Christ? How are you magnifying Christ? Are you magnifying him in such a way that they're seeing him closely and clearly? Does the image of Christ that they see magnified in your life cause them to want to know more about Christ, or does it cause them to want to know less and turn away? Would it give them incentive to turn to Christ so that they could have what you have? Something uh, that will give them a reason to, to flee to him or flee away from him. You know, something that people see in Christ sometimes, they, they think it could be something nice. You know, it's maybe something nice added on, but it, it just doesn't really bear any influence on their lives based on what they see in other Christians. You know, they need real solutions. There's a whole lot of people out there that are, are worrying about providing the very basic needs of their family. They're, they're worrying about putting food on the table. They're dealing with real loss, real separation, real anxiety, illness, disappointment. There's not a lot of these people who just want to sprinkle on top of their lives a little spirituality or a little religion. And what really does that type of Jesus do for them? Just add it on to what they already have. Will it make the problems go away? 
Will it make it any easier to make ends meet? No. So, so why in the world would they listen to that? Why would they seek that type of image of Christ? The fact of the matter is, the salvation that Jesus offers, uh, it doesn't guarantee any of those changes. There's nowhere in the Bible where Jesus promises any of those things be solved or resolved here in this life. But it certainly can and will provide them with the confidence and hope that transcends whatever they're going through, whatever circumstances that they experience in this life. And it gives them the assurance that whether in death or in life, they can rest on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. So again, are you magnifying Christ? And what are they seeing? Paul told the Romans in Romans 12.1, he said, to present your bodies, present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which was their reasonable service. And here in verse 20, in our uh, text in Philippians, Paul was applying this thought to his own experiences. He's noting that Christ will be exalted in his body whether by his life or, or by death. This really is a practical display of the confidence that Paul had in the Lord. So again, another question is, do you have this amount of confidence and peace with God's will for you? That no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what uh, the outcome might be, that you have the knowledge that Christ will be exalted in your life. Are you resting upon that? And knowing that if that happens, if you are exalting Christ in your life, that that's what's best for you, no matter what comes your way. This is the place that Paul had come. When Paul mentions his body, I think it's merely pointing out that Christ is to be magnified in all aspects of our lives. Not just our thoughts or words or other things, but even in our bodies, the mundane things even. It echoes the idea that Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, when he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, many Christians divide their lives into compartments. We compartmentalize, very easy. Uh, we, we, we compartmentalize our lives into things of, of God here and, and work here and, and family there and Perhaps our health is another area, uh, dealing with our bodies and nutrition and exercise and whatnot. And they're all working independently of each other. Now, we may not come out and readily admit this, but for all practical purposes, it's displayed in our actions and our decisions that we make. The world helps to fuel this idea by promoting the idea that uh, we are to keep our private lives separate than our public. All right, where it's all right to believe in something. You can have faith, you can believe in whatever you want, practice religion or a particular lifestyle, as long as you don't bring it into the public realm, as long as it doesn't affect your job or politics or, or anything, any of your other relationships. As long as you don't try to put your standards on someone else, they say, hey, go for it. But what about us Christians? Do we magnify the Lord in all aspects of our lives, consistently? Even the mundane things like eating or drinking. 
we magnify him through our bodies. Paul said that our bodies, uh, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Our bodies are not our own. We're to guard our eyes. We're to guard your tongue and your mind. Live surrendered lives to him. Romans 12, 1. I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's your reasonable service. Merely seeking this truth is just not sufficient. You must practice yielding your body to Christ. Practice living to His glory, and, and as you do, His grace is sufficient. He gives you grace to do so. You must awake with the name of Jesus on your lips in the mornings and, and commit the day to Him. Surrender your thoughts to Him, even at breakfast. You must ask Him to take control of your eyes and tongue so that you might give those to His service. And when you do so, you see how this starts to transcend everything you do. Everything. Now here's one more challenge against compartmentalizing. It, it comes from Charles Swindoll's commentary. He makes, a, he makes a very valid point here. He says, we often talk about priorities. We often say, you know, God is first, uh, then family is second after God, uh, then we move on to the things of the church and that sort of thing. And it is vitally important that we have these priorities in the right order. Okay? But he points out that there is an inherent flaw in this system right off the bat. It's not that we put God first and we sort of check that off our list and move on to something else. No, we, we put God first in everything we do. We seek God first, yes, but we seek God first uh, through our marriage. We seek God first through our families. We seek God first through the things we do in our church. We seek God first through our work and our relationships. If we're not careful in trying to prioritize our lives, we end up compartmentalizing and doing the, the, the very thing that we're trying to avoid in the first place. Glorifying God, magnifying Christ, is something we do throughout all aspects of our lives. And when we do, when we seek His kingdom first in all we do, then then God will use us, and he can bless that. So that brings us to verse 21. And this verse cuts deep like a surgeon's scalpel to the heart of Christianity. The question is often debated, what is Christianity? You know, what is Christianity? So the question uh, is often a puzzle. It's a puzzle to the non-Christians, certainly. Non-Christian historians or sociologists, psychologists. It's a question that puzzles the person on the street all the way to the, the homemaker or student. What is this Christianity? But for the true Christian, it's really not a mystery. It's pretty simple. Christianity, at its heart, at its very core, is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. All, all of Christianity finds its center of gravity in him. He's the son of by which everything revolves around, and by which if he wasn't at the center, everything, all aspects of our lives 
this world would spin out of control. And if you take Christ from Christianity, you disembowel it. Paul understood this when he writes, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, many people will never understand the heart of this. They only see the outer edges. They see the basic shape of Christianity, the basic structure, and, and they often misinterpret it. Consequently, the unbeliever often forms false conclusions about its essence and, and often rejects it out of hand before they even understand their core Christianity. And that's Jesus Christ and what he's done, his finished work on the cross. And like I said earlier, for many people, a knowledge of Christianity stops at contact with those who call themselves Christians. It goes no further than that. And unfortunately, so many people who claim the name are so far away from God and what he intends uh, them to be that they're putting off this false data that gives false impressions to those potential seekers. Christianity is, is much, much more than uh, just a, a self-affixed title. It's much more than an, an identification with the church. Christianity is not about ceremony. It's not an adherence to a, a certain uh, moral system. Today's churches are, are filled with those people who look good on the outside. They, they do the things that are right according to human standards. Christianity is all about the person of Christ. Nothing about Christianity will be rightly understood until there is a submissive and obedient, humble relationship through placing one's faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You just want to understand it. And, and of course, that repentance and forgiveness that, that naturally comes with that. Now, Christianity is unique in this manner. You know, when you compare it to other religions, you take any other religion, for example, and you remove its leader or its founder, and it collapses. You take Buddha out of the... Right, it doesn't collapse, I'm sorry. It stands. You take Buddha out of the equation, and, and Buddhism pretty much still operates. I mean, Buddha was just a guy who supposedly reached the state of nirvana that they teach others can do so by uh, following the same type of path and, and then finding their, seat to, uh, their path to enlightenment. You take Islam, for example. You take, take Muhammad out of the picture, and, and uh, it still stands. You know, he, Muhammad was supposedly a, a prophet just like Isaiah or Elijah or even Moses or, or Jesus, according to them. You know, they may have to find some other uh, prophet to uh, bring the, the truths of Allah, but it still stands without Muhammad. Same thing goes for Mormonism. You take Joseph Smith out of the picture, and you know the man himself is inconsequential. Mormons can believe in Mormonism whether they've heard of him or not, really. Of course, they can't talk about him too much. They can't put too much emphasis in him because people, so many people since him have come along and have added uh, extra revelation that contradicts one another, including Brigham Young. So they don't talk about him too much. But the point is, it's not the same way with Christianity. Remove Jesus from the equation, and it completely falls apart. Without Jesus, there is no substitutionary atonement for sins. There, 
There's no conquering the grave, no offering of grace, no uh, imputing of Christ's righteousness, no fulfillment of the law, no mediator of the new covenant. There's none of that. It all falls apart. There's nothing left but some form of, of Judaism. Christ is everything. We first have faith in Christ, and then we have fellowship with Christ, and And as we do, we follow Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. We live for Christ now, and when it's all over, we're with Christ for eternity. This is where Paul was in his walk. This is the place where he he found himself where there was no outcome that he could possibly conceive in which it turned out to be lost. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain." Continue on in verse 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is much is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Which to choose? Which to choose? How could he choose? Of course, the choice, the choice wasn't up to him. He knew this. The choice is not up to us. He knew that God's will would be done, and that until that day, until that day that God called him home, he had work to do. Death is, is just entering into the presence of the Lord. But it will come at the proper time. For now, if we're still here, then it's good. It's good because it means that we're here for Christ's sake, to do the will of the Father, and that there is profitable work for us to do here. Now, just as a side note, this, this is a, a verse that uh, goes against the idea of soul sleep, where this erroneous idea that says that when believers die, they, they enter into some subconscious state of existence waiting for the resurrection. But uh, we can cite many examples throughout Scripture where this is not true. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And Paul took joy in this. So why are we here? Why are we here? Why have we not departed this temporary tabernacle of the flesh, this tent? that we're in, this temporary dwelling. We live to glorify God. Yes, yes, of course we do. But more specifically, we're here to spread the gospel while there's still time. Let me ask you this. Do you know what the one thing that we're guaranteed not to be able to do when we get to heaven? It's evangelism. We'll be able to worship and glorify God forever. We'll be able to praise Him and have the sweetest, sinless fellowship imaginable. We'll continue to learn. I know this because we'll never reach a point where we have learned enough. We'll never reach a point where we know it all, or else we'd be God ourselves. But of all the things that we'll do, there won't be any reason to reach the lost because it will have been too late. Too late. Think about that. Paul says that 
If I am to live on in the flesh, it will mean fruitful labor to me. This is what it's all about. If you think about it, all we do in this life, really, should be a means to this end of evangelizing the world. Yes, there is joy and fellowship along the way, but what else really is there? If we work, it's so that we can support our families, and and we, we support our families so that there is time for them to mature and to be able to place their faith and trust in Christ when the time comes. And as they grow in Christ, and as we do, we, we use this opportunity and the abundance and the, the grace and blessings that God gives us to reach those around the world, reach those through our relationships and these very same jobs that we are using to uh, sustain this existence. Now, some are called to, to reach large groups. Some are called to uh, go overseas. But don't make no mistake, we're all called. And we're all here for this same purpose. We're all here to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone we come in contact with. We have to re- maintain this eternal focus. I think this is where Paul, uh, what Paul's getting at here. For him, there's only two possibilities. Everything else has fallen away. His life is so focused. He says that he is hard-pressed in from both directions. Okay? Uh, the Greek literally means to hold together. Okay? To press together. It's often used to convey the idea of being hemmed in from both sides as if you were walking down a narrow gorge. And the further you walk down that narrow path, the closer the walls press in on either side. The more narrow the path becomes. The question is, have you arrived at at this place in your Christian walk? This narrow path where you're pressed in from both sides, almost as if you have blinders on. You have blinders on. Walking the narrow path, the, the narrow path of God's will for your life. But it's not as if you're in danger. It's not like you're walking a tightrope in which you're, you're in fear of falling off either side. No. Like there's no safety net or something. You're walking this narrow path because life has narrowed down to really only two outcomes for you. When you're so focused on magnifying Christ in your life and you're focused on that eternal uh, perspective that seeking Him first in all aspects of your life, then you live for Christ. And you don't worry about the transient things of this world. And when you do, when you do leave this world through that doorway of death, it's nothing but gain. It only means to be ushered into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and receive that eternal reward. Listen, I, I know that it can be much easier said than done, having this type of, of focused perspective. But, but really, we really do need to discipline ourselves to see the path in front of us with this eternal perspective because so soon it will be over. We only have a short time. While it's day, before the night comes, before the judgment We have to be good stewards of the time that God has allowed us to have. We must maintain this focus. 
Our lives could end tonight. Our lives could end another 30 years. We don't know. <clears throat> but if it does, if, it, if our lives do last for 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, it's because we have a fruitful mission to perform. I just encourage you and challenge you as Christians to uh, focus your life on Christ and magnify Him through your life and, and remember that as you magnify Him, others are watching. How are you magnifying Christ? What are others seeing in your life that will make them either come to or walk away from Christ because of what they see in you? What impact is he having? Is it just something that you talk about, or is it something that impacts your life wholly, whole-scaly, transcends everything? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this time we've had together, and we just we want to be good stewards of the time you've given us. Lord, you have blessed us abundantly. Lord, we just always want to be aware of our mission here, as we glorify you in our lives, we want that to overflow with us, Lord. The love that you showed first to us, let that love show to others. And in that love for others, Lord, we can't help but share with them the only remedy for this terminal disease that they have, we all have, of sin. And how you've given us the remedy through your Son, Jesus Christ. That one day, if we place our faith and trust in you, that we can stand confidently in front of you not by our own works but because of your works and your righteousness help us to maintain that focus Lord in Jesus name we pray Amen